going to ask you to open your Bible to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. I want to look through a series of scriptures um, this morning in the book of Hebrews primarily to look at the reality of the incarnation or how God came to us personally in flesh and what that reveals. Um, Somebody once said that how Jesus came tells us why he came. That when we look at the, the incarnation, we see a revelation of the heart of God for us, why, why he came and why at Christmas that is such a significant transition point in what God was doing redemptively in the earth according to his eternal purposes. And I love Christmas because it's, it's unique as a holiday. We don't celebrate the 4th of July all month long. Um, we don't, well, some people do Halloween all month long. Um, uh, but there's something about Christmas in all of the accoutrements of the season, the, the decor, the lights, the, the food, the, the gatherings, um, but the music. And central to this season and what gives meaning to this season is the proclamation of the gospel through so many of the, the Christmas songs that we love and know in this season. And I know, it's, I know we're talking cultural traditions and then the spiritual underpinnings of the season that we dial into, but... But it creeps up on and it creeps into to people whether they realize it or not. I was literally a couple of years ago and I took note of this, sitting in an IHOP, eating my bacon and eggs or whatever I was eating. And I was taking note of the Christmas music that was playing. Because some of it just kind of sounds like elevator music in the background, you don't pay attention to it. But I was noting it because they were, there was some rendition of O Holy Night. And O Holy Night, it packs a punch. I mean, it, it preaches the gospel in it. And so whether people are knowing it or not, while they're sitting there scarfing their breakfast, over them is like this truth. And, but the next song was Frosty the Snowman. <laughs> and then the next song was Ava Maria, you know. And then it was Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. It was just kind of this. It was just like whiplash. It was just kind of like, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, Jesus, culture, Jesus, you know. And, but all of it just kind of commingles together. But it brings us to the center candle, doesn't it? And that we come together on Christmas Eve. And I want to add to Pastor Ben's encouragement to you. It's not about filling seats, but the statistics show that the majority of people, like we're talking like into the 80 percentile, would come to church if somebody would invite them personally. So there's a receptivity. And especially in this season, the Holy Spirit's been at work, um, softening hearts, drawing hearts. And so I want to look at this reality of the incarnation this morning and not the deep theological understanding of the incarnation, because I'm going to leave that to Pastor Ben. He can do all the heavy lifting on that. I'm going to go for some low-hanging fruit this morning um, about the, the incarnation. But the Christmas story is like, there's this meta-narrative. It's really about the whole of Scripture, for God so loved the world, um, that God was doing something in and through Um, who he was to reveal his love for mankind. And he was going to get real personal at Christmas, which changed the game for us. And the angel showed up to Joseph in Luke's gospel, or Matthew's gospel, and telling the Christmas story. And as a matter of fact, angels are central to the Christmas story. And I actually told my wife, I said, if an angel ever shows up in our room, I'm chasing it out. Because in the scripture, whenever an angel shows up, somebody's getting pregnant. And literally, just trace it through. If somebody's like, oh, he's going to have a baby when the angel shows up. And, like, and they're usually miraculous and unexpected. And it's like, 
We've been there, done that. So we're, we're not looking for that angel visitation. People are like, I want to see an angel. Like, no, I don't. And, uh, <laughs> but the angel showed up to Joseph and said, Mary's going to give birth to a son, and you're to name him Jesus. That, that life is going to come forth from this unique union of the Spirit of God working within Mary to bring conception, to bring forth a life, and you're to name him. And the name is going to be central to his mission and why he's here. He's going to be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and and call him Emmanuel, God with us, That, that God is going to take on human form. And when you talk about Christmas, because for me to say God changed at Christmas time, that could sound heretical. That could just sound like, like, wait a second. I thought, because let's step for a, back for a moment. There's some aspects, obviously, the reality of who God is that is never going to change. God is a holy God. That means that God is beyond corruption. That means that God is incorruptible. And aren't you glad for that? That God isn't going to go breaking bad on you a thousand years from now. That God isn't suddenly, you know, a thousand years from now going to change in his heart towards you. And his character is going to begin to become vile or wicked or evil. That God is incorruptible. He's holy. He's not like us. We, he can't go bad. But but the scripture also says that God is immutable, which really is a theological term that means that God can't be improved upon. It's like there's, there's no part of him that needs to get better. You and I, however, are a work in progress. That God knew that the day that we got saved, we would be a lifelong project. And he's very comfortable calling us complete who we are in Jesus. He sees us complete in Christ. Like you are perfect, you are a saint, you are a holy one in Christ. But he also knows that the process of discipleship and following Jesus is going to be a transformation because he tells us right up front, you follow me and I will make you into fishermen. I'm going to change you. You're going to change from the inside out. Who you are in Christ is going to become the reality of your experience and transformation and the sanctification that will take place in our lives as we follow Jesus. But, But God changed at Christmas time. Not, not in the sense that he got better or that he got worse, but what changed? Let me tell you what, what changes. As simple as I could be this morning, I apologize if this insults your intelligence this morning, but I just wanted to be so simple and focused on the heart of what Christmas is for us. But God, first of all, changed form. The word became flesh. God was spirit. Even Jesus reiterates that to the woman at the well. God is at the well. God is spirit. The Spirit never took on flesh before. And if you read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil, the evil one, who had the power of death. And only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Because we're human. Because we're flesh and blood. In Hebrews, it says, it wasn't for angels that he came 
to save, but it was the seed of Abraham. It was human beings. It was people. Because we were flesh and blood, he had to become flesh and blood because it's only as a human that he could sacrificially step into that place for us and lay down his life and demonstrate the fullness of who God is and his love for us, that the word wasn't flesh before, but the word became human. You're going to give birth to a son. The virgin will conceive and bring forth a child, and he will be called Jesus. He will be Emmanuel, God with us. And so at Christmas time, God got a body. And the reason why is to show us the full extent of his willingness, his commitment to reach us. This, this is motivated by love. It's sourced in his love. It's originated in his love. That the God is love and love will give. For God so loved the world that he gave. What did he give? He gave everything that he was in the most sacrificial of ways. Not just Philippians chapter 2 says that he set aside what he could have rightfully claimed as deity and God, and he took upon him the very nature of a servant, and he laid down his life and died even a death on a cross. He went to the most harshest and lowliest of places, this condescension, this lowering as, uh, uh, in a sense, because if you think about it, it was, it was so unheard of in that day and time. Because in the Greco-Roman world, there would be these pantheon of gods that they would worship. And, and the whole goal is that humanity would try to become deity. The thought of deity becoming humanity was offensive. Like, that's unheard of at the least. And yet this humility that was shown in the incarnation of Jesus coming and laying down his life. But the reason that's so impactful and we could talk about the incarnation and all the miraculous, unusual nature of God and man together in the form of Jesus. But I want you to see it very simple. The impact of this is because it shows us the full extent of God's love. We read it this morning in 1 John 4.9. This is how God showed his love to us. This is how that he sent his one and only son into the world. Don't look at your manger scene. Don't think of Christmas apart from the revelation of God's love in the person of Jesus. So Jesus would come and he would say things like this. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. You want to know what God is like? This is what God is like. God and Jesus are the same. <laughs> If you ever have questions about the God out there, the God out there came right here, made his dwelling among us, pitched a tent among us, the scripture says. He was right here in front of us in personalized ways that if I ever wondered what God is like, I can open the gospels and read about Jesus and go, oh, that's what God's like. Because God had never been put in a place where he was touchable, where he was perceivable in that manner. And this, un, this holy, unchanging, cannot be improved upon God reached a broken and a sinful humanity by taking on flesh and loving among, or living among us. That shows his commitment to us. And I don't ever want to underestimate that or take that for granted or treat it superficially. Because think about the extent of this. We, I'm from Portland, Oregon. You guys can relate a little bit being from the Seattle region. 
We love a good cause, don't we? Um, always want to, you know, champion something, save something, and, and I'm not here to talk about that. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I think we should be good stewards of creation. I, I'm all for that. I, that's not the point you want to make, so let's not go down those roads. But let's, I want to find an example that's pretty benign, um, unoffendable. But, but let's just say this classic, save the whales. I, I want to save whales. I think we should save whales. I think whales, we need whales. I think whales are good. So I just want to state my position right up front on whales. Uh, uh, but, but, you know, we used to see the bumper sticker, save the whales. So people are like, all right, let's save the whales. And I'm like, okay. How far are you willing to go to save the whales? Would you become a whale? Would you take on whaleness? Would you swim in the ocean, eat krill, talk like <laughs> Actually, you saw a nature show once where a guy was, my son watching this guy who says he can, uh, he can hear and understand what whales are saying to each other like they're talking to each other. And the interviewer says, well, what's he saying? He goes, he's lonely. I'm like, no, you're lonely. You're lonely. <laughs> I mean, we're not talking about just, hey, for three years, would you be a whale just to help the whales kind of live forever? Would you, be, would you do that? Would you go be a whale and die for whales? Now, I know that's a ridiculous comparison. But the one who is enthroned above all things, the author of creation, surrounded by angelic worship in the perfection of heaven, set that aside and took on himself humanity, the form of a servant, not temporarily. But that baby that was born would live for 33 years and then would be brutally put to death, and that body that was put to death would be laid in a tomb. And three days later, that body would be resurrected, and weeks later, that body would ascend to heaven, and that body sits at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for our lives. And one day, Jesus is coming again in that glorified body. And the Bible says every eye will see him. And every ear will. That the angel said, in the same way that you see him coming up, he's coming back again. You and I will touch nail-scarred hands, just as Thomas did. This wasn't temporal. This was for all eternity that Jesus identified with us in our humanity. That shows the full extent, the willingness. And every parent knows like that, that kind of, a, of parental love that, that basically says, I give up all my life for you. I mean, every parent knows that. You know that you, the minute you hold that little thing in your hands, your life is now secondary to theirs. You're, you're, you exist for them. It's, it's just the nature of it. My uh, family and I were traveling once when our boys, I have three sons, and they were three, five, three, and one at the time. Now they're all in their mid and late 20s. And um, we were flying into Seattle, and we were coming back from vacation. It was in the summer, and it was just crowded airports. And we had all the stuff you have when you travel with kids at that age. And, and we're coming down the escalator to get on the underground tram there to go back to the main terminal, just sea of people. 
And we get to the bottom, and I look to my wife, and I say, we need to wait for the next train, because people were just jamming onto the train that was there. And my middle son, Sam, who later on in life would go to college on a full-ride track and cross-country scholarship, this was our first indication he was a runner. <laughs> and at three years old, he turned and he ran and he jumped on the train. And then he turned around and literally, like, I'm from that guitar to him, because I was, Sam, stop, stop, stop. And he jumped on the train and then we met eyes and then the door closed <laughs> and the train left. And I looked at my wife and said, I am so glad we have two other kids because <laughs> I'm going to really miss him. I'm going to miss that little, little stinker and um, teach him to run off. And I'll tell you what, I shifted into a gear I didn't even know I had. It was like my whole purpose just came into this laser focus. The only thing that mattered was my son was lost, and it doesn't matter to me how he got lost, whether he disobeyed or whatever, my three-year-old son could not get back to me even if he wanted to on his own. This father had to go search for him. I was on a search and rescue mission. The Bible says that God looked at creation, and the book of Isaiah says that we, like sheep, every one of us has gone astray and lost our way. God didn't sit up there in heaven and go, well, I'm going to make some new people then. He said, get me a body. I'm going after him. I'm going to go get them myself. Some of you will be bothered if I don't finish the story. And <laughs> but there were people on the plane who we had met on the plane who were on the train who saw what happened. And so they stayed with him at the next stop until we got there. And I tell you, that was the longest four minutes of our life. And I tell you, when I saw those people standing next to our son, I hugged them first. Don't you love people who will help you find your lost kids? Don't think this Christmas God's not excited about people who are going to be part of his search and rescue mission, that your father cares about children who are not home with him. Jesus said, for this is the reason that the Son of Man came, to seek and save the lost. He's looking for those who don't even know to call to him who don't even know to look to him. And this is astounding that we have a God who showed us his love by sending his one and only son into the world. So this Christmas, we think about that candle in the center. We think about what changed, what God changed in terms of the revelation of how he presented himself to us as a God of love who was willing to take the initiative to reach to us when we didn't even know to reach to him. And as Pastor Ben said, our worship is in response to him. We love him because he first loved us. When we were dead in trespasses and sin, when we were the most unlovable, when we were the most undeserving of love, God loved us. And the incarnation shows the, God, the commitment and the extent of God's love to reach us. The second thing, just I won't spend as long on these next two, but the second thing is, it changed how God relates to us now. And the scripture speaks of how a process of how God related to people through intermediaries and the priesthood and through the rituals of sacrificial systems of worship and how people had to approach God, that it was on the basis of his law and it was on the basis of his judgments. And now because of Christmas and what Jesus has done, 
it changed how God relates to us. There's a new covenant that we have entered into because of the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus that God now relates to us on the basis of his mercy and grace. And if you look in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it says, for this reason, he had to be made like his brethren in every way, the incarnation, in order that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are tempted. That, think about this for a moment, that you have a savior you have a God who is not up in heaven saying, I have no idea what you're going through. Because the same Jesus who was born miraculously at Bethlehem is the same Jesus who would live for 33 years and experience firsthand rejection, physical pain, loss, sorrow, betrayal, hellish assault and spiritual opposition. He faced intense temptations yet was without sin, you have a savior up in heaven who's able to sympathize, able to empathize with what you are going through. And you, you have a God up there who's saying, I've been there. That what changed at Christmas was the nature of how God is able to relate to us through Jesus Christ, which reveals or brings forth an expression of his mercy that not a God just up there detached from the human experience but a God who's able to meet us where we're at in our own points of pain, our own points of sorrow, our own points of brokenness in order to bring healing, comfort, restoration, and transformation that instead of this impersonal, there's the personal. There's the God of creation who comes close to us. In Titus 3, verses 3 to 5, it says, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, and we were hated and hating each other. Now listen to this. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, that, that he saved us because of his mercy, that when the kindness and love of God, of our, our Savior, appeared. I don't know if you think of the manger scene as the kindness and love of God appearing to us. There's an Old Testament word that often is translated mercy. And it's a word that we, we struggle to find in the English, a way to say it that it is in the Hebrew, but it speaks to an aspect of God's love. It speaks to, literally, sometimes it's translated this, God's loving kindness or God's tender mercies. That when it speaks of God's love, you often in the scripture, God's love is this standalone thing that originates in just of his own person. That we call it the agape love of God. Um, in the Greek, it's, the, it's God's um, determination to love you by virtue of a choice he makes. I will love you. You have a God up in heaven who's chosen to love his creation. And it's not based on reciprocity. It's not based on, will you love him back in return? It's not based on conditions. If you do this, this, and this, then I will love you. It's just indiscriminate. I love God, so love the world. People will die and go to hell every day rejecting that love. And God will have loved them till the end. God loves broken, lost humanity. 
He loves the nations. He loves the peoples of the earth. But that's a will, that's a, that's a volitional act. That's something that originates in the will of the one doing the loving, and it's, it's apart from the other person. But this word, loving kindness, tender mercies, um, this aspect of love is not indiscriminate. It's just not just like, hey, for everybody. This is a unique word that's in relationship to somebody else. By virtue of our relationship to God in Christ, he has been merciful to us. It's an attitude, it's a disposition of the person doing the loving. So this is not just, I will love you. Who, who wants to be married in just pure, slugging it out commitment? I mean, you want somebody there every day, you're never going to be insecure. You want to wake up and know that they're going to be there. They're going to, they're going to follow through. They're, they have integrity to their word. They said they love you in sickness and health, richer and poorer, whatever. They're there. But how many of you just want that? I said I would. I said I'd love you. I love you. I choose to. It has nothing to do with you. I just, I just love you. Um, in spite of you, I love you. You know, and it's like... Don't you want it to flow from the heart? So this is a God who says, I will love you. But this is a God who says, I want to love you. And there's warmth and tenderness and affection and kindness. It's a disposition. God says, I love you, and I want to love you. It flows from the heart. He treats us according to his mercy, his tender mercies, his loving kindness, no longer just on the basis of judge, judgments and, and justice and laws and regulations. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, it says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let's hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So let's approach the throne of grace with confidence. Now listen to this. So that we may receive what? Mercy. Mercy. And find grace to help us in our time of need. A throne of grace is what you're praying to when you're laying at bed at night trying to figure it out how to resolve an issue, a relationship unreconciled, something turning around and causing you sleeplessness, and you're starting to approach God in prayer, what are you praying to a throne of grace so that you might find what? Mercy, grace in your time of need. Then the third thing is, what changed is it changed how we relate to God. No longer do we relate to God on the basis of festivals and seasons and locations. I got to go to that location, to that temple, to that place. It's a relationship now that flows from the heart. So I relate to God now from the heart, not just on the basis of behavior. Behavior will flow out of this covenantal life I share with God through Christ, the new creation I've been made. And I'm learning to live out of the reality of that new identity is, is Jesus is Lord of my life. But in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, it says, this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. 
You're not just having 10 commandments inscribed on tablets of stone, but God's taking his law and he's inscribing it upon our heart. He's writing his name on our heart. So what flows out of our heart are desires that are pure and holy towards him. Our desire is to God. Our desire is the new nature within us wants to love God, wants to obey God, wants to trust God. But it's born out of God's love that he demonstrated for me by coming to me personally. And he's dealing with me on the basis of his mercy and grace. And my response is, God, from the heart, my life belongs to you. See, that changes it. It takes it out of the category of religious obligation and duty, and it makes it real. It makes it personal. This is, this is a God who is with me in the storm. He's with me in the nighttime. He's with me in the desert. He's with me uh, uh, in the, the prison cell. He's just, in name any situation, God is with me there. I can trust God in the highs and the lows. God is with me. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. He'll never check out on me. He'll never, this is a real relationship. I grew up a pastor's kid and uh, grew up in southern Michigan. And we had this job that kids would get in junior high in the summer detasseling corn because there was all the corn companies out all the fields and they would grow corn seed and, and they would detassel the rows of corn every seventh row they would leave tassels on. It had all to do with how they pollinated the fields. And so for three weeks every summer, kids would get these jobs for the DeKalb Corn Company pulling tassels. So all day long, you're just in a bucket going through the rows, pulling these tassels. And so we got paid in one paycheck. So in seventh grade, first time ever in my life where I got a job where I got a paycheck. And so I got paid three weeks in one paycheck. And that's when I learned about FICA and taxes. And, um, but back then, this was about 45 years ago, um, minimum wage was like $2 and something. And, so my whole paycheck, let's say, was around $200, just to round it out. And I remember standing in, the, I'm standing in our home there in, in Michigan, and I'm standing in the kitchen, and I can remember it to this day, looking at this paycheck. And for a seventh grader back then to have $200, it was like, should I buy a boat? Should I get a car? I mean, it was like, it was like this unfathomable amount of cash in my hand. And I only mowed lawns and things like that up to that point. And my dad was looking over my shoulder and goes, oh, you need to give $20 of that in church as an offering. You, you need to tithe $20. We tithe 10%. So 10% of that is 20. You need to give $20. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Up to then, offerings had been kind of like tipping God in Sunday school, you know, tossing in the quarter. And, and like, wait a second, 10%, $20? Like, I pulled those tassels. Jesus didn't pull those tassels. I was like, I, I, was, I didn't see him out there yanking on those things. And, and so I had these two friends, Nathan Carter and Tom Mitchell, who's, we all went to the same church together, and their dad sold them the same thing. And so we were like grumbling about it. And so then we decided, all right, if we got to do this, we're going to do it on our terms. And so we went to the bank, true story, got out $20 a piece of nickels, dimes, and pennies. And that Sunday, we, we got them in these bread bags, and we smuggled them into church, and we sat in the front row, and that should have been everybody's first clue. Uh, it came time for the offering, and it was the ushers would come forward, and they carried these little silver little offering plates with a little felt, green felt little circle on the bottom of it. And they stood there, and while the offering was prayed over, we called them angry men in suits because they were always yelling at us, shut down, quit having fun. <laughs> Jesus doesn't love you, you know. Um, and we're... So then all of a sudden, the amen, and the music starts, and the usher turns to me and hands me the plate. 
I take the plate and I put it on my lap and I pull out my bread bag. And I just go. <laughs> I mean, the noise of those coins hitting that tin. Just, <laughs> and my dad is the organist and the choir director in the church. He turns and he looks at me and he's like, I will destroy you later. <laughs> and handed it to my friend Nate. <laughs> we, that thing was so full, you couldn't even lift it, overflowing with nickels and pennies and dimes. So after church, we're driving home, and it's my, I have two brothers and a sister, and we had an exchange student from Norway living with us at the time, and it was just quiet in the car all the way home. And I kept going, uh-oh. Um, and we pulled into our little driveway, or we had a little farmhouse pulled into our driveway, and my dad's looking forward still, and he says, everyone out of the car, Randy, you stay in the car. So everybody gets out of the car, and I just sat in the back seat, just sat there, just and all of a sudden, my dad turns around, and this is so out, of, was so out of character for my dad, and unlike any conversation I'd ever had with him before. And he kind of had this bewildered look on his face, and then I could tell there was like a little tear in his eye, and he said, son, I need to ask for your forgiveness. He said, I'm, I'm going to give your $20 back. I failed you. I somehow made you think that God wanted and needed your money. Son, God doesn't need or want your money. He wants your heart. And the Bible says where our treasure is, that's where our heart is. And money is just one of the ways we direct our hearts. And if he has our money, he's going to have our heart. And it's just one of the ways that we worship. But if that doesn't come from the heart, it's just dead obligation and requirement. God doesn't want your duty. He wants your heart. Son, would you forgive me? And I, I'm like, of course, but don't let it happen again. <laughs> I, I, I hope you learned your lesson. Um, but you know, from that point in seventh grade to this day, never again, I, I never miss a dollar I've ever earned in my life of not putting the Lord first. I don't do it out of any sense of now. I just tooted my own shofar. It's not to get praise for myself. That's not the idea. The point being is I recognize it's with joy that I bring my song. It's with joy that I surrender my schedule. It's with joy that I bring my giving. It's, it's because it comes from this revelation of what God has done for me and who he is in my life as my provider, who he is in my life as my source, is the place of my affection. And there's no idolatry. I don't want anything to come into this place that's reserved for him alone. And we know that relationships exist at the lowest level of willingness. That you could really be interested in having a friendship with somebody here, but if they only want to have a friendship with you here, it's got to, this is where the relationship exists. I mean, like, it's the junior high thing. Ah, I love you. It's like, I'm going to block you. You know, it's like, this is where. And right now, we come to the scripture, and because of Christmas, we have this revelation of a God who says, I'm all in. I've shown you the full extent of my love. We're only as close to God as we want to be, because he hasn't gone anywhere. He's all in. And so now we say, like the Apostle Paul, I lay hold of the one who laid hold of me. I love him because he first loved me. I'm pursuing the one who pursued me. 
And that's why the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, who's lived this full, miraculous life of ministry and fruitfulness and an apostle to the nations, and he's about to be put to death because of his unwavering commitment to the lordship of Jesus and the message of the gospel he preached. And what would you think he was thinking about in that moment? In Philippians 3, in his final, some of his final words he's writing, he's saying, I want to know him more. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, somehow being conformed into his image. I want to be like, I, there's more of Jesus to know from here. I'm glad I get to do stuff for Jesus. I'm glad my life gets to be a signpost pointing to him. I, I, I'm glad I get to give evidence and witness to his reality. But it flows out of this place of intimacy of knowing him in this Christmas. I just want to appeal to you. I want to invite you to come to a place of fresh surrender and revelation to the opportunities, the way that Jesus has made for us to know God. And in these days, the scripture says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. With full assurance of faith, a sincere heart. I'm going to ask you to pray with me if you would. And Aren't you glad that a lot changed at Christmas? That God didn't leave us condemned, perishing for eternity, but he came to us personally, so loved us. Maybe this morning your response, maybe you're watching online or you're here in the room and your response this morning would be, I'm going to open my heart to that love doesn't mean you can fully explain every mystery and uh, truth of the scripture and spiritual things, but just in your heart, you're saying, I believe that Jesus died and rose again. I believe that. And I'm going to say with my mouth, because of that, Jesus, you're Lord. You're worthy of taking my life. I surrender it to you. And I take your life as my own. Would you receive that gift of God's life given to you because of his love for you? Christmas is the revelation of his pursuit of us, his coming near to us. And simply receive what is freely given because you can't add to it, you can't improve upon it. It's hard to take a gift from somebody when you've got nothing to give in return. You just come as you are. And just simply say, Jesus, yes, my life for yours. In that simple confession, the Holy Spirit appropriates what Jesus did on the cross for us. And we're brought into a birthing into his life. It's this miraculous thing that happens right here in this moment. And maybe you just would say a simple prayer like this, Jesus, I repent of my sins. I'm turning to you. I believe, Jesus, you are, as the angel said, you're Emmanuel, you're God with us, you're Jesus, you're the one who can save. And I surrender. I say, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. I'm glad you're in a church that will help you to, to grow in that if that's your starting point today, let somebody know that today. Come talk to one of the team or pastors or elders afterwards up front because this church is committed to helping you grow as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus, to live in the fullness now of that life you've entered into. Aren't you glad that God didn't deal with this through just legalistic approaches of rituals and rules, but now deals with us with his compassion and grace and mercy? The Bible says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. And maybe this week for you, your response would be that you're going to awaken to the mercies of God. They're new today. 
It's, what I, it's daily bread. When you wake up in the morning, it's like God set a table before you for that day. And let the orientation of your heart be towards the mercies of God towards you this day. His compassions, his loving kindness to you. He's with you. He's for you. He's in you. He's committed to the things that he has purposed before the foundations of the world in your life. And today I awaken, God, not to the problems of the world and to the distractions of the world, but I awaken to the reality of a God who's present with me to walk with me in my day. And so maybe as well a response for you would be to respond to God from the heart, that you would walk with him, that say, today, God, I, I choose you. I choose you this day. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to trust you. I'm going to walk in obedience. I want to hear your word. I want to follow your spirit's prompting and leading in my life. I want to love you from the heart. Because when you seek him, you'll find him. When you seek him with your heart, the scripture says. And so God, I pray your blessing over all the men and women and children in this place. God, may this coming week be one of rich revelation of who you are in their lives. May God, your presence permeate their hearts and their homes. May everywhere they go, may they be ambassadors just of your grace and life. Lord, may your light of love and truth shine brightly through them, whatever tables they sit at, wherever houses they enter, whatever gatherings they participate in. God, may your presence overshadow them, go with them, and go before them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Northwest Church, go to our website, nwcfoursquare.org, or download our app in any of the app stores by searching Northwest Foursquare Church.